0: Somewhere roughly a year or so into this, my wife and I met up with some friends of hers. My wife had known them for nearly 20 years at this point. I had never met them, though, because they live pretty far away. This was summer 2021, post-COVID vaccines, but still deep COVID times. It was a risk for us to meet with them, but a risk worth taking. Her friends were doing a little summer tour flying into a region, renting a car, and meeting up with whomever they could in the area. We all met up in an outdoor park for a few hours, keeping careful about contact and about shared breathing spaces. My wife, Ethel, wasn't on oxygen then as she is now, and we were able to stroll around with their little family. Her friends had two teenage boys, two of the most pleasant and wonderfully inquisitive teenage boys I've ever met. Ethel's friends, too, were super cool. The whole family were very pleasant with each other, even when one of the boys got some of the local flora caught in his long hair. It wasn't a fake pleasantness, either. Nothing about them came off in any way disingenuous, individually or as a group. I wished not only that I'd met them sooner, but that they lived much, much closer. When my wife first introduced us, the husband quite naturally asked, "'What do you do, Milton?' This was the first time since quitting my job that I had to tell someone that I was, in fact, unemployed. And this guy was cool, too. Tattoos that clearly meant something. A long beard that looked pretty good for no grooming. Looked like he'd be as comfortable and as nonchalant in a boardroom as at the handlebars of a Ducati. No posturing, either. That was just like his air. And so, anyway. I have to tell this super cool, super chill, super new bromance crush that I am the worst of all manly things, living off my wife's income. Ethel, though, like all the best life partners, slid instantly into PR agent mode and said, since I got sick, he's become a house husband. (sighs) Which, okay, yes, I joked with her, many, many times about how perfectly suited I am for the role of either house husband or kept man. I am more adept at removing a variety of stains from a range of fabrics than I am at building anything but Lego. Ikea vexes me, but I know exactly which attachment I need to clean which thing with the Dyson. After a year of not being able to get myself to even try installing a ceiling fan. I offered my father-in-law a homemade but diner level breakfast and dinner to entice him to come over. But you see, these were jokes between Milton and Ethel, between us, entre nous, if you will, because someone around here has to be in charge of morale. And here she was, spilling my unmanly beans to this unflappably cool, hirsute hunk of a man with whom I had already projected a lifelong Seth Rogan slash james Franco-ish relationship lasting well into our nursing home years. "'He's become a house husband, she said. "'Fuck's sake, woman.' But then my James Franco here said, "'Holy shit, that's cool. If I were a house husband." I'd get that fucking tattooed on my chest. You see, we didn't talk about it, but Ethel and I were using househusband as code for caregiver. Things were easier for us then, and I did spend a lot of time finally getting to some things around the house that had been put off, or, you know, getting around to getting other people to do them while I made them food. (laughs) I knew already then that caregiving was going to be my primary occupation but I'd never really felt okay about it. Hell yeah, he said. If my job were just to take care of my family and our house, I'd fucking tell everybody. That was the first time I ever felt okay about being just a caregiver. Welcome to Stick It Out, a podcast about caregiving. <laughs> Hello again, everyone. Mr. Milton Bananas here. I've been a caregiver to my wife for about three years now, after she was born with cystic fibrosis, and uh, she's now in need of actually a second double lung transplant. She's holding steady right now at about 20% lung function, and we and her docs are working on getting her on the transplant list ASAP. How many of you are, quote, just a caregiver? Whatever your reasons for not working right now, do you identify primarily as a caregiver? Or maybe you do work, my heart goes out to you, but you still view yourself pretty much as someone's caregiver. Almost anyone would tell you that you're doing the Lord's work, as they say. Which, if true, I could use that rest that he said to have gotten on the seventh day, just saying. People will also call you a hero. When you share your situation or your story with a group, everyone will make those pained faces that people make, like when Meryl Streep pretends like she's had enough Oscars and this one really should have gone to someone else. They say really callous things to you like, I don't think I could do what you do. Or, the world needs more people like you. Which, side note, If you find yourself telling someone that the world needs more people like you, maybe step up to the plate and become one of those people. I'll step off my soapbox now. That's all well and good, and I appreciate the kind words. I genuinely do, even though they ring hollow to me. I do appreciate them. I don't need kind words, though, right? None of us really do. There's enough of those out there, and it's never enough anyway. What we need, just like anyone else, is to be valued in the culture in which we live. In my opinion, you can determine what a culture values by what it spends its A, time on, and B, money on. In America, we pay millions to entertainers and a pittance to our teachers. Ergo, we value being entertained through all of our current crises more than we value educating ourselves and our children, etc., out of them. But while there are some assistance programs in the U.S. for caregivers, they are the rarity, the exception to most people's experience. Most of us were thrust into this role with neither pay nor training, and for some of us it's our only identity— In a Western world where identity revolves a great deal around what you do to earn a living, we don't. We help someone else stay alive. So if you have the misfortune like I do of being human and you don't earn a living, you seem to be, what, less than a whole person? You're not a contributing member of society. You're not even contributing to the income of the household. What even are you? Later on, after I'd calmed my nerves and was able to have what I believe was a totally normal conversation, not at all tinged with homoerotic innuendo on my part, my James Franco said something else. He was talking about his kids in the way that dads do, where they seem to identify with their sons on some deeper than just an X chromosome kind of way. Something unspeakable and unknowable, but there. But at the same time, he's literally watching them with a look on his face like, who the fuck are these people? Like, maybe he met them half an hour before I did, even though he's telling me a story from when the older one was in third grade. Anyway, I don't remember the story at all. I was probably staring deep into his eyes, lost in a hopefully shared vision of doing our own naked and afraid, but he ended it by saying, I told his teacher, look, I like weird people. Weird people know who they are, and therefore they get into less trouble. (sighs) Once again ripped from what could have been a great savage love column, I was forced to consider... What an amazingly wise statement that was. Think about it. When you know you're weird, you don't have to be normal. It's when you have to be normal, but you're weird on the inside, that you tend to get yourself into trouble, because you see, weirdness needs expression. Honestly, that's essentially my life story in two sentences, but we'll just come back to that maybe another time. But here's what I want you all to know. As a caregiver, you're already weird. Even if you don't feel weird or funky or abnormal or whatever words you want to use. Even if you're a straight edge, honest Christian, Jew, Muslim, whatever, just a complete my body is a temple type even if your whole house is beige with word art on the walls and an ever-present hint of the old pumpkin spice latte and the delightfully fresh air caregiving makes you weird simply put your priorities are different from the workaday world your goals are different and often aren't strictly speaking your own goals your time is different The way you use your time is different. The way your time is used by some other people is different. The way you shop, cook, clean, eat, watch TV, sleep, fuck, shower, all of it, all of it is different from the way that Western life raised us to be. You are weird, my friends. What would it look like if you just accepted that? Would it make anything easier for you? Would it make some things more difficult? And if so, would they just be more difficult in the short term or the long term? If the normal world doesn't value you, why value what the world sees as normal? And now it's time for our second ever segment. One little victory. For at least a year now, I've tried at the end of each day to look for that day's one little victory. Sometimes it's really something little. Sometimes it's a big win. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes I have to think about it for a while. And sometimes, honestly, I'm too sad or too upset or too tired or just whatever to do the work anyway. So, meh. Our air conditioner took a shit on the 4th of July. It was in the high 80s, low 90s all day. Ethel didn't eat much. She barely even moved, which is a really bad combination for her current condition. This worried me a great deal. All day, I was just in the back of my mind, no matter what I did, just living there. Anyway, I also don't tend to sleep well when it's warm, and the combination of these two things robbed me pretty much of any real shut-eye that night. I needed to get up early anyway to call around to the service places, which I did, but frankly, I was a mess. Without meaning to, I lost my shit on pretty much everyone in this house before it was even 8.30 a.m. And I felt like a colossal failure. Just so tired and angry and down. And who knew if the AC guy would be here before it got too hot and how that might affect Ethel's breathing and so on and so on. And then, of course, what was it going to cost? It's not like we're rolling in it over here, you know, just like most of you, I'm sure. He showed up around 10 a.m. He was actually very kind and very pleasant, and he knew what he was doing. And my favorite thing is just kind of a nerd is he took the time to explain what he was doing and what like the little numbers on his gauge meant and stuff like that, even though I would never try to do what he was doing on my own in my life. Still, it ended up not costing all that much possibly thanks to a total heathen of a friend of mine who nevertheless actually prayed for us. And the rest of the day was spent in a much more comfortable home. Right after the servicemen left, but before Ethel lied down to sleep, she approached me in the kitchen. She did what she knows she has to do to totally get my attention, which is make me stop, make me stand still, make me put my hands at my side, those kinds of things. And she gave me a hug. And she told me that she loved me. And more meaningfully to me, in in a weird way, she thanked me for getting the AC fixed so quickly. She didn't say a word about my tirade a few hours ago. She still hasn't to this point. She didn't hold it against me. She's not going to hold it against me. She didn't go on about how I lose my temper sometimes. She merely hugged me, thanked me, and told me that she loves me. That's my one little victory today, not so much the hug or the thanks. And I know she loves me, of course, but that she knows, I don't need to be told my behavior that morning was bad. She knows that I'm going to be hard enough on myself about it. And so she doesn't need to, and really what the victory is, is that we have learned to communicate well enough through the last three years, through all the horrendous stuff that we've been through that she knows these things about me that she wouldn't have known a few years ago because I wouldn't have known how to tell her. If you have the time and energy today, I would like you to think of one little victory for yourself. It can be small, it can be big, but anything, anything from your day that makes you feel a little bit better about how something could have gone, about how something didn't go, or about how something did go, doesn't matter. I prefer that you write it down somewhere by hand. Take the time to think of the right words. Maybe think about writing it to a person, maybe your person, but it could be anybody. Take a minute, watch the ink soak into the page. Reread what you've written and then take a breath and try to remember what victory feels like, even a small one. If you like, you can share it with me on Reddit, you can find me at Mr. Milton Bananas. You can tell me your one little victory today. I would love to hear about it. And with that, I want to thank you for taking a little bit of time with me today. I know you don't have a lot of time. As I said last time, I'm sure you listened to this while you were doing something else. Thank you even for that. I hope something that I have said helps some of you, and I hope all of you have the best day possible today. Be well out there.